Let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. So we're going through uh, the book of Hebrews on Wednesday night, verse by verse. And uh, we did Hebrews chapter 1 this past Wednesday. We'll begin Hebrews chapter 2 this coming um, Wednesday. We may not make it a chapter a week. We'll just go at the pace that... um, how it just kind of shakes out as the Lord wills. But for the time being, I want to kind of give um, an overview on Sunday morning, and then we're going to go in depth on Wednesday night through the book of Hebrews until God directs us differently. Hebrews chapter 2, I'm going to read the entire chapter to you, and in this text today of Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to draw hope from what God shows us in his word. And we're going to look at four specific things. We're going to look at a warning to heed, a promise to be fulfilled, a family to sanctify, and a life to share. So let's read together Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him, but we see Jesus who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he, has, he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I, the children, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore in all things he had to be like 
made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. The word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel and we thank you for the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. And we ask that you would, by the Spirit of God in us, illuminate your word, open our hearts and open our minds. Lord, cause your word to be implanted into the good soil of our hearts that it would bring forth a righteous harvest of fruit for your glory. We ask this, that your church would be your light and salt in this earth, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here in chapter 2 of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews begins with a warning. And the warning is this, therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. It's a warning of drifting away. And so the warning here presents a reality that is seen when men fail to give careful attention to the teaching of Scripture centered in the gospel. When that happens, we begin to drift away. But it doesn't stop with drifting. You'll notice he says, Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? If we neglect or disregard so great a salvation. So there is the warning of drifting away. There is the warning of coming to neglect and disregard God's salvation. So we see this, that we begin to drift from truth in obedience to God. And what starts out as a mindless distraction, perhaps, turns into blatant neglect and disobedience. Jesus has provided for us so great a salvation. And the gospel of salvation is not only presented in the whole of Scripture, but it was spoken by the Lord Jesus himself. It was confirmed by those who saw and heard him as firsthand witnesses. And then the writer says, God also, through various miracles, signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, He testifies, he gives witness to this gospel. And so, remember, this letter is being written to a group of Hebrew believers, and their temptation is to go back to Jerusalem to sacrifice in the temple. And the writer reminds them that this salvation that you have come to to say that you believe in, this salvation that you receive in Jesus Christ, That salvation was spoken of in times past. It was given to us in times past by angels, by various means and various modes. And he said, if that word spoken through angels proved steadfast or faithful, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, and we see this in the history of Israel, when they would enter into spiritual adultery and they would forsake the Lord, God would bring judgment upon that nation. 
And, and the writer of Hebrews is saying if God was faithful to keep his word, he was faithful to his word, that word delivered by angels, how shall we escape? If they didn't escape from that word delivered by angels, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which was at the first began to be spoken by the Lord himself? All of those angels and all of those prophets and all of those people in the Old Testament who spoke of Jesus who would come, they spoke of him. But now the writer says Jesus has come and Jesus himself began to speak of this. Jesus spoke of this salvation. Those who witnessed Jesus and heard Jesus firsthand, they have confirmed this salvation. And not only that, but God himself through signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit as he wills has given witness to this salvation. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation as this? And so Jesus has provided this salvation, this great salvation. And the writer asked the question, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And the answer is, we shall not. We shall not escape. If we persist in our disobedient neglect, men who persist in their disobedience will not escape. We're, we're tempted. This is why it's so important to read the Scripture, not to just read certain Scriptures. You know, we all have favorite Scriptures. You might, we probably all have, if we find ourselves in a difficult situation or a, a circumstance that is is pressing on us, we may all have certain scriptures that automatically come to our mind and we pray those scriptures or we stand by faith in those scriptures. And that's good and we should have those. And we should have those on our walls, we should have them on a refrigerator, wear them on a t-shirt, however you want to remember them, that's good. But that's not good enough. Because all of the Word of God is profitable for us. And this is one of the most important things about reading the Scripture, reading all of the Scripture. For instance, when you read the Psalms, you'll read in the Psalms where David writes in, in those moments of honesty before God. This is the beautiful thing about the Bible. The Bible doesn't hide man's sin. The Bible's not a book that just whitewashes everything and makes everything look really good so that we'll believe in this God. And then we come to find out all the bad, all the fine print later on after we've already made a commitment. That's not what the Bible does. The Bible lays it all out there for all to see. I mean, it lays out the sinfulness of man. It lays out the judgment of God. And David, in those moments of honesty before the Lord, he asked the questions, the very same questions that we ask. God, why does the wicked prosper? God, why does it seem like you are deaf and blind and it seems like everything has gone wrong? And why do I look at the wicked and it seems like they're getting away with murder, literally? But then the writer of the Psalms, David, comes right back and he reminds himself, but I will trust in the Lord. And God reminds him and God says to him, don't look at the wicked. They're like the grass which is here today and gone tomorrow. Keep your eyes on me. 
Don't look at what's happening to the wicked. They will get their just reward one day. And so as we read the scripture, this is the, this is the profit of reading the scriptures. It's profitable for us because we find ourselves in those circumstances and we ask those same questions. God, why is this happening? God, why does it seem like all of this horrible wickedness is taking place and it seems like you're nowhere to be found? But God absolutely is everywhere to be found. We just have to have eyes to see him and ears to hear him. And it's not based on what we can see with our natural eyes. Sometimes it is. I mean, we can see the goodness of God with our natural eyes. We can feel the goodness of God. We can experience the goodness of God physically, tangibly, every day. But our life is not just defined by what we can see or what we can feel or what we can experience. As good as that may be, or as horrible as that may be. Our life is defined by Christ. Our life is defined by what God has declared. Our life is defined by what God has said is so. And sometimes we find ourselves having to walk by faith because we can't trust our sight. Or we walk by faith because what we are able to see with our natural eyes by our natural sight is not what we want to see. It's not what we want to believe. It's not, it's not what is giving us hope. In fact, it may be trying to rob us of hope. It may be trying to instill fear in us. When God says, fear not, for I am with you, says the Lord. And you say, well, I can't feel him. Well, it's not about whether you can feel him. It's, it's about whether you believe that he is true or not. And he said, if you are mine, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. And that has nothing to do with how we feel. It has everything to do with who he is and what he has declared. And this is the very things that the writer of the Hebrews, this letter to the Hebrews, is getting to with these believers who are feeling this tug and this pull. Oh, man, you know, I just want to go back to Jerusalem and offer an animal sacrifice. It makes me feel so good. I had someone tell me one time who was raised Catholic. I have anything against Catholics. I have a lot of Catholic friends, but I'm not Catholic. And uh, they loved praying to Mary. And they said, I know praying to Mary is not biblical. I know Mary is not my mediator. Jesus is my mediator. But here's what they told me. They said, but praying to Mary is so comforting to me. It just makes me feel good to pray to Mary. I'm like, okay, I, I get that. But your prayers are ineffectual if you're not praying to the person who is the mediator that God has chosen to be. There's one mediator between God and man. It is the man, Christ Jesus. And we don't even have to, we don't, not only do we not pray to Mary, Jesus said, you don't pray to me anymore. You pray directly to the Father in my name. Through Jesus Christ, we have direct access to the very throne of God, to the Father. And sometimes we find ourselves doing things because it just feels good or it just feels right or it just, 
It makes me feel good, but, but it may not be rooted or grounded in truth anywhere. And that's what these Hebrew believers are wanting to do. They're wanting to go and do something that's not rooted and grounded in truth. In fact, it is not just a silly thing. It's a dangerous thing that they're endeavoring to do. And this is the warning that we who are in Christ need to give earnest heed to the things that we have heard. Because if those who received that word delivered by angels, if they did not escape, if God was faithful to keep his word then, how much more faithful is God going to keep the word that is delivered by the Lord Jesus Christ and by his eyewitnesses and by God himself who has through miracles and signs and wonders affirmed this word and this salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. So it is by grace that we can, through faith, turn our hearts to Christ and find true life. This is the good news. The good news is that we do not have to persist in our disobedience. But by grace, we can, through faith, turn our heart to the Lord Jesus Christ and escape those things. Therefore, let us do more than heed the warning. Let us love Christ and his gospel. Let us give careful and loving attention to him and to his gospel and to his command to love God and one another even as he has loved us. It's not just about, oh, gosh, I guess I'll obey God. You know, what choice do I have? I mean, who wants to go to hell, right? So I guess I'll just obey God. No. That's not right. Jesus didn't say the greatest commandment is to just obey God. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love God, to love God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your soul, with all your mind. When you love something like that, you don't, you don't do it half-heartedly. You don't do it begrudgingly. You do it because it's in your heart. You do it out of a sense of joy. It brings you fulfillment. It's what you desire because it's what you love. You can always tell what people really love by the way they live their life and what they do. By the things they go back to, by the things that they're drawn to. Those are the things that we love. And our obedience to God, our obedience in Christ should not be out of a fear of going to hell. It should be out of a love for God, a love that God has put, has placed in our heart. And if we're purposeful to do this, we will never find ourselves drifting away and falling into neglect and disobedience to so great a salvation is that which the Lord has given to us in Jesus Christ. You know, it is, it, is, it is a fair prayer, it is a good prayer to ask God to give you greater love for him. So I'm trying, Pastor Jeff, but I don't know, I'm just, well, we'll go to God in prayer and say, God, change my heart, God. God, give me a greater love for you. 
change me. Ask God to change you. I ask God to change me all the time. I know you guys think I'm perfect, but ask my wife. She'll tell you different. I'm not. Far from it. I know you don't think I'm perfect. I hope you don't. We need to be changed. We need to be being changed all the time. And that change is us being conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Has anyone arrived? No, we have not arrived. So there is no one. It doesn't matter how long you've been walking with the Lord or how short you've been walking with the Lord. We are all on a journey and we are all to be being changed. We should all desire change, that God would change us from the inside out, that he would conform us to the Lord Jesus and that our hearts would yearn with love for him so that we would not find ourselves drifting away or neglecting this great salvation that he has given to us in Jesus Christ. So there is a warning to heed. There's a promise to fulfill. We find it in verses 5 through 8. For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you, are, that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. Those verses are from Psalm chapter 8. And in Psalm 8, God gives this promise, speaking of mankind, that he has placed mankind in this place. He's given mankind an authority over his creation. He made man a little lower than the angels, but he has placed man in this place of authority that transcends all things. Verse 8. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. That's what the psalm says. Speaking of man. Then it goes on in in verse 8 of Hebrews. For in that he put all in subjection under him. Here's the commentary on that psalm from the writer of Hebrews. For in that he put all things in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. Do you, when you look around at the world, do you see all things in subjection under your feet? You don't. In fact, you can look around in this world and it may seem like most things are completely out from under your feet and out of control and you have no say in it. But the writer of Hebrews doesn't stop there. He says, but now we do not yet see all things put under him, but we see who? We see Jesus. Jesus, remember the God-man, Jesus, who was 100% God and at the very same time, 100% man. Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels in his humanity for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. 
This is a promise God has made to mankind. The promise God made to man in the beginning of the creation is fulfilled in the man, Jesus Christ. The writer is presenting the promise of God to man recorded in Psalm 8. And that promise originated in the beginning when God created man and gave him the command to take dominion over the earth and all that is in it. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 20 through 28, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. That's the Trinity right there. That's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. That's the plurality of the Godhead. Let us make man according to, in our image, according to our likeness. Let them, let man have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. I want you to pay attention to that. Because that defines gender right there. There is male, and there is female, and there is nothing else. I don't care what the news says. I don't care what the culture says. I don't care what the doctors say. I don't care what the psychiatrists say. I don't care how hard they rage to convince you that the Bible is a lie. You have a choice as to what you're going to believe. You're going to believe God, or you're going to believe the lie. You're going to believe the truth, or you're going to believe the lie. And here's the truth. In the beginning, he created him, male and female. He created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That's the mandate from Genesis. That's the mandate God gave man in the beginning of creation. That's the mandate that's reaffirmed in Psalm 8, and it's the mandate that the writer of Hebrews is reminding us of here, a promise that is to be fulfilled. The lie is that man has no more right to the earth than the snail or the ape or the eagle. We're just another species. We're just another animal that lives on the earth, and we don't have any more right to this earth than any other creature. That's a lie straight from the pit of hell. Because God created this earth and he created everything in it before he created man. Then he created man as the crowning jewel of his creation. And he says to man, this earth, this creation is yours. Subdue it, take dominion, be fruitful, be multiplied, go out and fill the earth. Fill it with what? Fill it with the glory of God. Fill it with the image of God. The earth and all that it that is in it was created for man to subdue and have dominion over. In doing that, man is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with the glorious image of God. Man alone is created in the image of God. And as man fills and subdues the earth, that glorious image of the glorious God will also fill the earth. Whether the atheists believe it or not, every time they have a child, they're filling the earth with the image of God. It doesn't matter whether they believe it or not because every human being born is born with the the fingerprint of God, with the image of God impressed, imprinted in them. That is humanity. That doesn't mean every human is going to be saved, but it means every human bears the image of God. And those humans will either, they will either love their God or they will hate their God. Those that love their God will find themselves in eternal communion with, 
living in the presence of God, those who hate the God will find, hate God will find themselves eternally separated from Him in judgment, in their hatred. The dominion over all things God has promised is ongoing. Thus, we're approaching, if we haven't already exceeded it, about 8 billion people on the earth, right? But ultimately, that dominion is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. As God has put all things in subjection under Christ's feet, He has also put all things in subjection under all those who are in Christ and called His body. The ultimate fulfillment of this promise is in Jesus Christ. This psalm, this mandate at creation, it was always meant to be through Jesus Christ that man would subdue and have dominion over this earth. All things have been placed under the feet of Christ. And we see this. Let me me just read it to you. Let's go over to Ephesians. Just one more scripture here as we consider this promise. If you look at Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 22, Paul writes, And he put all things under his feet, speaking of Christ, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, that's us, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus is the head of the church He put all things under his feet, under the feet of Jesus, and gave Jesus to be head over the church, who is his body. That means the feet that all things have been placed under are the feet of those who are in Christ. We are the body. He is the head. It's a picture of us seated, enthroned with Christ in the heavenlies, and all things placed under our feet. This is a promise God has given to mankind, fulfilled for us in Jesus Christ. It's a promise we should not forget as we are tempted to look around at the world and think that God is not in control when in reality He is in absolute control of everything. This also shows us a family to sanctify. Verses 10 through 13 talk about how He sanctifies And those, for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all one. And look at verse 12, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here here am I and the children whom God has given me. Up in verse 10, it says, for it was fitting for him... For whom are all things and by whom are all things and bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of our salvation perfect or complete through suffering. It was fitting for Jesus to suffer. Not because Jesus deserved to suffer because he didn't. Not because Jesus was lacking anything because he wasn't. When it says there to perfect through suffering, it doesn't 
mean that there was something lacking in Jesus and God had to cause Jesus to suffer so that Jesus would be perfected. What this is saying to us, and the reason it says, for it was fitting for him, it's saying this is the eternal plan and purpose of God. This is why Jesus is called the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. It was fitting for Christ. Christ crucified was not a reaction to sin. The cross was not God's plan B because man failed in the garden. Christ crucified was not a reaction to sin. It was the eternal proactive plan of God. It was fitting for Christ because it was the eternal plan of God to save and to sanctify his children through the work of Christ on the cross. The cross, the suffering of Christ on the cross was the eternal plan of God. Had Jesus not gone to the cross, the plan could not have been perfected or completed. We are not simply people God saved in his pity. I want you to understand this. This is very important. It's very important in how you view yourself and how you understand who you are in Christ. We're not just simply people God saved in his pity. We are the people of God chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. We are those God predestined to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of his will. Ephesians 1 verse 5. This is who we are in Christ. God didn't just look down from heaven and notice suffering humanity and go, oh gosh, you know, man, they're so pitiful. Maybe we should do something about them. What do you think, Jesus? You think we should go down and help them out? No, that's not how it worked. Before God created anything, before he flung a single star through the farthest corner of the universe or, or through a galaxy or a universe out there somewhere, God's plan was to create mankind and through mankind raise up a savior to save for himself a people, children, a family, brethren. This is the language the Bible uses That means our salvation is not the reaction of a compassionate God who pitied us because we were lost in our sin. Not at all. Sin is never to be pitied. It is to be destroyed because sin is a destroyer. God in his grace sent his son to ultimately destroy sin and to destroy death. Our salvation is not an afterthought. It is the eternal, purposeful forethought of God before creation to create for himself and for his glory a people he would call his own. And not just a people, but a family. We are called sons of God, children of the Most High. Jesus calls us his brethren and the children whom God gave him. If you are in Christ today, if you are trusting in Jesus today, it is because God gave you to Jesus. That's not what Pastor Jeff says. That's what the Bible says. Jesus in John's gospel says, No one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by the Father. I want you to think about this. Because the devil tries to remind us all the time of how unworthy we are and how bad we are and how 
Often we fail and surely God must be fed up with us in our failures, in our falling down. But yet the Bible says that before you ever fell once, in fact, before you were born, in fact, before he created the universe we live in and the earth we stand on, God chose you in him before the foundation of the world. And God predestined you to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ. I want you to think about that. And I want you to think about the love of God that made that possible. I want you to think about your failures compared to God's forethought in saving you. Your failure is nothing compared to God's love and God's salvation given to you in Jesus Christ. And that's not, I don't say that so that you can go out and revel in your failure. I say that so the enemy can't get in your head and make you believe that you're not truly loved by God because you have failed. I want you to understand that you are loved by God. We have all failed and we will continue to fail, but our failures don't define us. The love of God in Christ is what defines us. And that love of God in Christ poured into our hearts should motivate us to live for him, to serve him, and to love him in return, and to offer our life to him a living sacrifice and find our highest calling and our greatest joy in loving him and serving him. He has made that possible in spite of our failures, in spite of all of our falling down. And his love and his salvation is greater than any sin or any failure you could ever possibly commit. Jesus and those he is sanctifying are all one, the writer of Hebrews says. He is not ashamed to call us brethren. And that is the good news. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. He came and he defeated sin. He defeated death. And those who belong to Jesus have been redeemed and sanctified and have become his children, have become the very family of God. We are a family sanctified by Jesus. That's good news. So we have a warning that we need to heed. We have a promise that God is fulfilling. We are a family that God is sanctifying. And this scripture also speaks of a life to be shared. Verse 14, inasmuch then as the children, that's us, have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, Christ, likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those, that's us, who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. If you are in Christ, you are the seed of Abraham, Paul writes in his letter to the Galatians. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God, to make propitiation, atoning sacrifice for the sins of his people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Jesus was tempted, but he was never tempted to sin. Do you understand what I'm saying? When you and I are tempted, we're tempted to sin. 
we struggle with whether we're going to sin or not. Jesus never struggled with whether he was going to sin or not. He was tempted with sin, but it never entered Jesus' mind. Boy, I really would like to sin right now, but no. Because Jesus said, if you even think it in your heart, you've committed the sin. You might not commit the act physically, but if you think it, you're guilty. Who can stand in that? Who can stand in the face of that? I mean, I can, I can go without committing sinful acts, but, but one errant thought? Who can, who can live a sinless life? Well, none of us, according to God's standard, but Jesus did. He took on flesh and blood, came to this earth, he lived a sinless life because we could not. We can die, but our death cannot atone for our sin. But because he, in flesh and blood, lived a sinless life and walked in perfect obedience to his Father, his blood atones for our sin. God, through Christ, created man in his own image, knowing that his eternal Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, would be would in the fullness of time put off the glory of heaven and put on human flesh and become a partaker with man, not only in flesh and blood, but also in death. And Christ became a partaker of flesh and blood that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage, that is all of us that have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. Christ came and shared our mortal life and death in the flesh so that we could share his immortal life and power in the spirit. Christ came and shared our life and death to release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And we are now commanded to go and share his life and death to release those by the power of the gospel who through fear of death are still subject to bondage. Jesus has destroyed him who had the power of death. Sin, death, and the devil were defeated by Jesus. For all that have, seen, all that have been set free by Christ through the power of his gospel and a new creation, sin and death no longer hold power over those who are in Christ. You have nothing to fear. If you are in Christ... Sin has no power over you. Death has no power over you. You are free. You are released from that bondage. Now, you might not know it. You might not comprehend it. You might still have fear. But I'm going to tell you your fear, if you are in Christ, your fear is unfounded. It's irrational. Because there is no reason for us to fear death any longer because Christ has conquered death. His resurrection proves that. In Christ, we are released from our bondage. Now, in the power of His Spirit, we may purpose to walk free from sin and all things that through fear of death subject us to bondage. And if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Therefore, walk in your freedom. Walk free from sin. Walk free from the fear of death. Jesus Himself has suffered being tempted, and He is able to aid all of us who are tempted. He is a merciful and faithful high priest 
who shared our life in suffering that he could aid us in our need. Now we are to go forth in this world and share his life, his death, and his resurrection with the purpose of seeing men released from their bondage just as we have been released from our own. That's what Jesus has commanded us to do. We call it the Great Commission. It is simply our mission to go and to make disciples, to give men the good news that there is no reason to fear any longer. There is no reason to remain in bondage any longer. The truth will set you free. And if you have been set free from the truth, if you have heard today the words of the gospel and this truth, I want to encourage you to walk in your freedom. Stop living in your past. Stop letting your past define you. Stop letting the mistakes and the falling down of the past define who you are. Be free from that bondage. Don't be subjected to that anymore. Thank God for the victory, for the freedom that you have in Jesus Christ. Thank him that he has taken away your sin and he has removed it as far as the east is from the west and that he has given you a new life, a new heart, a new beginning, a new creation in Jesus Christ. If you know that you have received that by grace through faith, then thank him for that and walk in that freedom and let that truth define you and close out the lies of the enemy that want to come to you and whisper in your ear and try to drag you back into your past. Walk in the life that you have now in Jesus Christ. Walk it out every day. Don't worry about tomorrow. Just walk it out today and trust God daily as you do that. And if you've never done that, then call upon the name of the Lord right now, right where you sit, right where you are, and ask him to save you and to set you free. And if you ask that from a heart of faith, I promise you he will do it. And that's not an end. That is a beginning. Amen. Let's get ready to come to the table of the Lord. Let's all stand. In your charge today, I want to bring you back to the warning this chapter begins with. The danger of drifting away is real. And so the danger of neglecting so great a salvation is also real. We see this manifested today in the church when those who profess to be the church stand in front of a Planned Parenthood abortion clinic and call it sacred ground and bless it as the work of the Lord. That has really happened. Ministers of the gospel with staff from Planned Parenthood standing in front of the abortion clinic, calling it sacred ground and calling it the work of the Lord and blessing it in the name of the Lord. When we see this, we know that we have not only drifted away, but we are in full-blown rebellion deserving of God's wrath. When every sexual perversion is called normal and good and the church blesses unholy unions and ordains sodomites and gender-confused clergy, we have far surpassed drift and have crashed on the rocks of a raging torrent of sin. But you might say, Pastor Jeff, I agree and I am in no way approving of such things. In fact, I stand with God against those things and that is good 
And we must continue to stand and we must continue to examine where we stand and how we stand. You can stand guard with full vigilance or you can stand guard haphazardly. Obviously, when we see the things that are happening in the church and in the culture, we may conclude that too many for too long have stood guard haphazardly at best or they have abandoned their post altogether and joined the enemy. We may not all be guilty individually, but we are all guilty corporately. And our healing will begin with individual hearts that are moved to intercede and join corporately in the work of repentance and healing on behalf of the corporate church and nation as a whole. Your commitment to earnestly heed the things we have heard is crucial for the future of Christ Fellowship Church, for the body of Christ as a whole, and for our nation. It begins with each of us, with this congregation, and it will carry over as the Lord wills, to the extent that the Lord wills. But that will happen in and through our faithfulness. We are called to be faithful. He is faithful. So let us be faithful, even as he is faithful. Let us be committed, even as he has demonstrated his commitment by giving up his body and pouring out his blood for us. So let us, as the apostle writes, offer up ourselves, our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable. It is our reasonable act of worship. And let us do this that we may prove what is the good the acceptable and the perfect will of God. Amen.